This morning, as we uh, open our Bibles and get into the Word of God, I'd like you to turn to Psalms 2 in our continuing series on the book of Psalms. And we're just kind of skipping around. We're not going in any particular order here. But this morning, we are going to be talking on a very prophetic, messianic psalm that has a lot of judgment and yet at the same time has a lot of hope in it. So let's read it together. We'll read it first and then we'll kind of dissect it. It says, why are the nations in an uproar? Good question. Why do the peoples devise a vain thing or an evil thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, the Mashiach, the Messiah. Why do they, why are they so violently opposed to Christ? They're saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. As if knowing Jesus Christ binds you rather than sets you free. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. I've entitled the psalm, The Mini Book of Revelation. That may come as a surprise to some of you, but this is... Basically, the book of Revelation, in a nutshell, takes the beginning of man all the way to the end and shows how he acts. It contains all the key elements of the history of mankind, man's true nature, the response of God to men, the gospel, the good news, how blessed are those who take refuge in him, and the pro-offering of Messiah to sinful men, and what will happen at the end of the age if men refuse the grace and mercy of God that is being pro-offered today. It's all in 12 verses. It's amazing, amazing psalm. The more I got into it, the more I tried to scale it down so I could get it into 45 minutes. Otherwise, we'd be here for about five hours. The great C.H. Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said, We shall not err greatly in our summary of this psalm, this sublime psalm, if we call it the psalm of the Messiah, the Prince. For it sets forth in wondrous vision the tumult of the people against the Lord's anointed, the determinate purpose of God to exalt his own son and the ultimate reign of his son over all his enemies. The kingdom of God will be established, though we see much evidence to the contrary in our day and age. Now, some would say the psalm applies to King David, and that's possible, and that it's the continuation of Psalms 1 because of the three stands of poetic form, all of which may be true, but the psalm is first and foremost messianic and prophetic, and this morning we'll be looking at it in that light. I want you to see the messianic significance of this, the prophetic significance of this, and either be warned or be stimulated by what's said here. As we look this morning, we'll be considering basically four things. First of all, the raging of the nations in verses 1 through 3. Then secondly, the response of God to that raging in verses 4 through 6. Then thirdly, we're going to see the reign of the sun in verses 7 through 9. Then lastly, the recommendation of God to the raging nations in verses 10 through 12. And it's, very, it's laid out very, very well. So first of all, the raging of the nations in verses 1 through 3. Let's, let's read it together. This time, take note of what's being said here. He says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? It's a question. The kings of the earth take their stand. They dig in their heels and the rulers take counsel together. And that's what will happen in Armageddon is 
Satan gathers all the armies of the world together and they will counsel together to, as Dave, David read, to go against the one who sits upon the white horse in Christ. Battle of Armageddon isn't the armies of the world gathering together to fight each other. They are fighting heaven. They are fighting the Christ, the anointed one. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against the Father and the Son, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us, as if knowing Christ somehow binds you and following God somehow limits the expression of your sinful self or your sinful nation. Interesting thing. Now, that man is warlike is undisputable. Since the crucifixion of Christ, when men rejected the Prince of Peace, there has been a war going on somewhere in the world every year since. Every year, if you search history. And it seems it's gaining momentum. The last century was probably the bloodiest ever. Stalin checked in officially at 23 million Russians as he established communism in Russia. The unofficial figure among the people is about 75 million that he just massively liquidated when they gave him any problems. Mao liquidated some 50 to 100 million Chinese as he set up a communist socialist regime in China. Hitler had his 11 million. He was kind of a choir boy compared to the others. And add to that two world wars where millions perished and the Bloody conflicts in Southeast Asia, the African continent, and now the Middle East as hundreds of thousands have perished and 50 million have been left refugeed or homeless. It's not a pretty picture. We live in a bloody, raging, angry, vicious world. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. You know, it's depressing to turn on the news these days. I mean, we, we get all depressed or some, somebody goes in and shoots 10 people or 20 people, and we should. It's an ugly thing to do. But people have been massively being liquidated. This last century was the worst of all. Man is warlike, and he's sinful, and he's wretched. Now, why are the nations in an uproar? The Hebrew word is ragash, and... And the word means tumultuous, to enrage, to plot, to conspire, which is what leaders of nations do. Why are people or nations devising a vain thing, the psalmist asks. The psalm says, why, are, why all the evil? Why can't we get along? You know, even communism was a beautiful concept in the sense that everybody works together for the good of everybody else and communal living and stuff. But you add to that the sinfulness of man and it creates disaster. Even capitalism. You add to that the, sinful of man, the sinfulness of man, what does it create? Greed. You know, it's not like it's, it's fixing everything. We're always trying to extract from everybody. That's the tragedy of it. Why does that happen? Well, because it's who we are. We're fallen. We're sinful. We all want what someone else has, what someone else has worked for. We all want others to be subservient to us, and we're willing to kill to see it happen, both on a personal and a national level. Take a look at what's happening in our nation today. The divide is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more vicious and more vicious. Sad to watch. We're watching the nation in the process of falling. Now, obviously, I'm painting with a pretty broad brush, but that's basically been the history of mankind, war. But there's something else here. Not only does man not want his fellow man to rule over him, but he doesn't want God to rule over him either. He doesn't want to be subservient to one another. We don't want to be always looking out for the best interests of each other. As you know, Jesus said, the greatest among you should be your servant. We're always looking for somebody to serve us. And that's on a national and a personal level. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. The kings of the earth, or the rulers of the earth, take their stand. 
And you can see the stand with the fist up towards God and the raging, the, the, the words, the blasphemous words of the Antichrist and those who, would, who are from his ilk. And the rulers take counsel together. Ultimately, the world will come together as one and they'll figure out how can we really get rid of God? You know, we've got these Christians who are telling us the gospel and they're irritating because they tell you you're, you're not wonderful and you're not the, the apex of human potential and so on and so forth. And uh, finally, it'll get annoying. And then these Jews, these 144,000 will come along and they're preaching the gospel. And man, they're like rabid cheetahs. And finally, man will have enough, the Antichrist will have enough because he's in league with Satan. And it'll be, how can we get rid of these irritants? They won't receive my mark on their forehead or on their hand. And, uh, you know, it talks about those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus in Revelation 20 coming to life and ruling with him in the millennial reign. And uh, it's going to get worse, way worse than it is now before it gets better. But he says, they take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, the Mashiach, the, the Messiah. Let us tear their fetters apart. Any of you feel fettered this morning because you belong to Christ? You know, I, I, I feel free. I know if I were to die today, I'd know exactly where I'd be going. I'm going to heaven, which is infinitely better than here. Although God has left me here for a witness, he's left me here to serve him and to honor him and glorify him, but I'd rather be in heaven, to tell you the truth. I'm not that excited about how I'm going to get there, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's in the process of happening. And every day that urge becomes stronger and stronger because I know Christ is Lord and Savior of my life. And I do not feel fettered. And he says, let us cast away their cords from us as if somehow, you know, those Christians, in, in our society, it's those Christians, you know, with that book, they beat us with the Bible, right? Uh, because we're wanting to exalt perversion, we're wanting to kill our babies, we're wanting to do all kinds of things that are just ugly. Even if we didn't have the Bible, they'd be ugly. It'd be hideous, they'd be sinful, they'd be wicked. But man has a problem with that because he knows that the Word of God puts a restraint on his evil and his wickedness. And who wants that restraint? Simply put, man wants to rid himself of God. We hate one another, but we hate God worse. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Man wants to paint Christ, the anointed one, out of the picture, and the unregenerate see Christ, for the unregenerate to see Christ as their Messiah and their Lord and Savior is to see themselves as bound and fettered in a prison, to be in subjection. Not set free from sin as Christ came to do the first time and eternally declared righteous and set free in Christ, but to be hindered and bound servants of someone greater than themselves. And who's greater than we are? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? The greatness of you? You know, I, I even saw a seminar up in San Francisco. It was I, I forget what it was called. It was like something like the greatness of you. Come to the seminar and you'll discover how great you, wonderful you are. And, you know, it made me want to throw up. But just think about the different philosophies of man. There's atheism. No God. In fact, hate God, not just no God. You just hate the God that you don't know exists and can care less that exists, but just hate him anyway. Um, and then there's the socialism, the communistic form, and that is godless, it's atheistic. There's humanism, which puts man at the top of the heap, right? Man is God. If you're at the top of the evolutionary heap, you're, you're calling the shots, right? Uh, there's naturalism, materialism, evolution, and false religions. And they all place man at the center and either try to eliminate God or make God subservient to men. 
They rage against one another and they rage against God in their attempt to fulfill Adam and Eve's dream to be like God. Serpent came to her and said, what? Day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you'll be like God. Who can resist that temptation? We all like to be our own little God, don't we? We all like to think we're calling the shots, we're, you know, we're living the dream, we're doing the thing, we're making it happen, we're visualizing it, and we're incubating it and making it come into existence, and on it goes. The nations are in a rage. People personally are often in a rage. And that's a sad thing to see because the Prince of Peace came to give you the peace that passes all understanding to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It seems like we live in a, a sea of anxiety, a sea of worry, a sea of, oh my gosh, I might get this, I might get that, I might, you know, i got to change my diet, and you end up dying of stress while you're trying to change your diet. You know, I mean, it's... <laughs> We're a mess. I hate to say it, we're a mess. Secondly, we see God's response to man's raging. Verses 4 through 6, he says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. This doesn't affect God that much. You know, to have nations raging against him. Isaiah tells us, I think it's in chapter 40, that the nations are a drop from the bucket, not a drop in the bucket, but a drop from the bucket. They're a speck of dust on the scales. It's hard to imagine someone that powerful and that awesome that would consider the power of man in that regard, isn't it? He laughs. He scoffs at them. I always think of Elijah. I love reading 1 Kings 18 where he confronts the 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth, and, and they're screaming and dancing, trying to get Baal to consume the sacrifice because the God who answers by fire, he is God, right? And God's not going to allow that. So, so they're gashing themselves and cutting themselves open. They're bleeding on everything. And Elijah goes, well, maybe he's on a trip. Um, maybe, he's out the, maybe he's out playing golf somewhere. Uh, I'm modernizing this. Uh, you know, maybe he's playing with his cell phone, and he can't give you his attention right now. You know, he just scoffs at them, and, and, it's, and he scoffs because God scoffs. He scoffs at the raging of the nations. He scoffs at the fact they're taking counsel how to get rid of his bonds and fetters. He just scoffs at them. He says, then he will speak to them in his anger. God is very patient and God is very merciful and gracious. But there comes a point where grace and mercy are no more. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ in his, all his glory, not in his humility. The Gospels were Jesus in his humility, the first coming. The judgment is the second coming. But then he says, and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In other words, this is what's going to happen. No matter how much you rage, no matter how much you carry on, no matter how much you shake your fist at God, God is going to have his way. Let me just get, put it simply. God rules. All the raging of man and the eternal scheme of things amounts to laughter to our God, and God will have the last laugh. It's called eternal judgment, and knowing that that should give us eternal perspective. Because God wins ultimately, we're on the winning team. Christ will be installed as ruler over the world. He will be the King of kings and Lord of lords, even though it may seem to be the contrary. So we see the response to man's raging, secondly. God rules. 
Recently, I read an article about the Easter attacks in Sri Lanka. And it was very interesting. There were about 300 Christians killed as they worshipped on Easter morning. And the attacks were simultaneously at a couple of hotels and a couple of um, uh, churches at the same time. About 300 people were killed. And in World Magazine, it had an article, and this is part of it, said, two days after the attack, an official ISIS media <coughs> channel released a video of the bombers, including Hashim, all pledging allegiance to Islamic State. And unexpectedly, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi appeared in a video claiming the Sri Lanka attacks and announcing the expansion of Islamic State beyond the Middle East. It was Baghdadi's first appearance since 2014 and followed dozens of unverified reports of his death, all underscoring the seriousness of ongoing ISIS threats to churches. With Sri Lanka attacks, he boasted jihad against the Crusaders will continue until doomsday. That's reassuring, right? Now I have news for that man. Doomsday will be his doom. As God speaks to him in his anger and terrifies him in his fury on the day of judgment. And that's what's really going to happen. Because God has installed his king upon Mount Zion and he will terrify him in his judgment. Unless he turns to Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay why? Because God will ultimately install his son, and John chapter 5 tells us that all judgment has been given to the son. Either he is Lord and Savior, or he is your judge. There's no in-between. Then the article went on to say this, and this is interesting observation. It said, weakness and vulnerability are at the heart of the Christian faith. Why don't we get an army? You know, and go kill everybody. Well, because humility and grace and mercy are what are to characterize our lives. Wrote the Anglican Bishop of Truro, Philip Mount Stephen, in a report commissioned by the British Foreign Secretary and issued this month. The report finds Christians are the most widely targeted religious community in the world and that acts of violence and other intimidation against Christians are becoming more widespread. Interesting observation as they look at the world. In other words, as the nations rage against Christ, they rage against his people. Paul would say, I bear in my body the marks meant for Christ. There have been millions of Christian martyrs down through the ages, and there probably are upward to 100 to 200,000 martyrs in our day and age every year. Why do the nations rage? Well, they hate God, they hate Christ, so they take it out on his people. That's the tragedy of it. You see, judgment will be the great equalizer. Verse 6 tells us God has installed his king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Jesus will one day rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. It's called the Millennial Kingdom, Revelation 20 tells us. And as many other places, this is uh, shown particularly in Isaiah and Zechariah. It's all there. Man devises and plans vain and evil things, but in the end, God rules. God wins. Christ reigns. And we reign with him. And I believe that day is rapidly approaching as we look at our world today. And that's what we see thirdly, the reign of the Son of God. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. What's that decree? What's that determination? He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Speaking of the incarnation, the first coming of Christ. And he says, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. 
the very ends of the earth as your possession. That has, you know, that has both meaning right now and futuristic meaning. He says, and you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. That's the futuristic. Now for the king to be installed on Zion, God's holy mountain, two things have to take place. The Son of God must be presented to the world uh, as declared or declared by the Father. And secondly, he must take possession of the nations and rule them. And there appears to be two phases here. One is that the Son of God was presented to the world in the incarnation, in the birth. A son was given to us, and then it says, and the, go the government must rest on his shoulders. Well, that didn't happen the first time, did it? That's what the Jewish nation was expecting, was a political deliverer from Rome, and, and Christ did not take his great power and begin to reign at that point. But if you understand it, God became a man, and we beheld his glory, glory is only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. And in a sense, the nations have been given to him as an inheritance in the very ends of the earth as a possession through the gospel, which has been taken to all the nations, Matthew 28.19, and, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. In a sense, the gospel has taken hold of millions and millions and countless millions of lives through the ages, through the last 2,000 years. But the earthly millennial reign of Christ has not begun because that is still awaiting fulfillment at a future time. He'll reign someday soon as the absolute ruler of all the earth, as verse 9 intimates, but not now. Now, the Jews in particular don't believe Jesus is the Messiah because at his first coming, he didn't take up his great power and establish his earthly reign. They saw no need for a deliver from sin, as so many don't. Who needs to deal with sin? It's just like you just kind of float somewhere near where society, the winds of society are blowing and not try to get too radical or too, too uh, conservative and so on and so forth, and you're okay. But that's not the deal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3.23 tells us. They believed they could establish their own righteousness derived from the law, the law of God. In other words, they developed a high view of man and a low view of the holiness of God. Man can save himself by his good works, but unfortunately, Scripture says, but by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some all. But the Old Testament teaches a need for two comings. Isaiah 7.14 says, there will be a child given to us, born of a virgin, who will be called, what? Emmanuel, God with us. That was Christ. Isaiah 9.6 says that he will a child will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, verse 7. But his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, that didn't happen totally the first time. Much of that verse happened. A child was given to us. Isaiah 53 talks about a suffering Messiah, one who would bear the sins of the people, bear the sins of the world, and would be resurrected. He would be eternal. Psalms 22 describes how he would be killed. But let me show you from the book of Daniel that the Old Testament conclusively teaches the need for two comings. So if anybody asks you in the future, you'll be able to respond. Turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, he has a vision, and he sees a statue, a head of gold, breasts of silver, and, and a midsection of bronze representing Greece, and legs of iron and clay representing the, the final form of world power envisioned in the Roman Empire. And uh, he's going to kill all the wise men of Babylon because he wants them to tell him the dream and the interpretation. That's never happened before in the history of mankind where a king made them tell what the dream was because he knew they were a bunch of phonies. And so Daniel 
prays and God gives him the interpretation. And in verse 34 he says, you continued looking, and he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, until a stone was cut out without hands. And this stone represents the kingdom of God, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them, crushed the final form of world authority. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time, and he, they became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. They just blew away, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. In other words, the final kingdom is the kingdom of God, and it will fill the entire earth, and Christ will rule over the entire earth. And then Daniel interprets this for him, and he says in verse 44, he says, the days of those in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out without hands, cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to you the, to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Someday Christ will reign in power and great glory. He will establish his kingdom. Why? Because God has installed his king on Zion, his holy mountain, as Psalms 2 says. Now go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel himself has a vision, and this vision made him sick for days, literally, because it was such an incredible vision. He says in verse 9, he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up in the Ancient of Days. I love that designation for God, the Ancient of Days. Took his seat, ascended to his throne. His vesture was white like snow, his hair of his head like pure wool, speaking of his holiness, his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. The river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads or ten thousands upon ten thousands were standing before him. The court sat, the books were open. And in the middle of all this, you have the raging of man, as exemplified in the Antichrist. In verse 11 it says, then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn who represents the, the Antichrist here was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, another designation of the Antichrist. He was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. The first two occupants of the forever hell are the false prophet and the Antichrist, as we read earlier. As for the rest of the beasts, or nations, leaders of the nations, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time, and that would be the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. And he says, I kept looking in the night vision, behold, with the clouds of heaven. You know, Matthew 24, 30 tells us that, that Jesus will come with great power and great glory. He says, one like the Son of Man, one of Luke's favorite designations of Christ, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him it was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and the kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In other words, it'll be forever. From the moment Christ comes back, the army, battle of Armageddon destroys the the armies of the world, he sets up his kingdom, his reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. There's a brief rebellion at the end. And then he creates the new heavens and new earth after the great right throne judgment. And he reigns from then on forevermore, beginning with the millennial reign of Christ. Now, this all seems like a slam dunk. It sounds like one glorious, massive uh, takeover by the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, Whatever the final form of the Roman Empire is destroyed, the Gentiles are shattered and broken into submission, and the Son of God reigns. Hallelujah, that's the Savior. No, that's the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Savior 
There's one little prophecy that people oftentimes overlook, which I think is a pivotal prophecy in all of the Bible. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. I think it's the most important prophecy concerning the timing of Christ and the end times that there is in the Bible, and I rarely hear it preached on. Daniel 9.24, he says, 70 weeks or 70 units of time, 490 years, have been decreed for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. He says, and for your holy city. What's that? That's Jerusalem. He says, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. That's what happened at the first coming, isn't it? Christ made the final atonement. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He died once for all, for all time. And then he says, and this is the second coming, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to set up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern. This is something Daniel was to know, and if Daniel was to know it, so are we. So we live in the last of the last days. And he says that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many weeks is that? 69. Seven plus 62. He says, and there it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. In December of 445 B.C., Nehemiah was commissioned to go rebuild the gates and the walls of Jerusalem, which he did. You can read the book of Nehemiah. And when Artaxerxes did that, from the very day Artaxerxes commissioned him to do that to the very day Christ entered Jerusalem amid cries of Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, it was 69 years, which works out to 173,880 days. To the day. That's why Christ said, you know, the Pharisees said, don't you hear what they're saying? And he said, well, if they don't cry out, the very stones will cry out. And then he weeps over Jerusalem. He said, if you would have known the day of your visitation, they should have known the very day their Messiah would come to them. That's how bad they missed it. That's how religious they had become rather than followers of the Word of God. And they missed it. They missed the most important day in the history of the world as far as the presentation of the Messiah. Then he says after the 62 weeks, which is actually after the 69 weeks, 483 years, 173,880 days, the Messiah will be what? Cut off. That means he's not going to reign at the first coming. I don't know how people misinterpret that or how they even miss it, but uh, and will have nothing. He will not have an inheritance in the nations at that point. He says, and the people of the prince who is to come, speaking of the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. At a certain point in time, Israel was going, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and the sanctuary, the temple, in 70 A.D., Titus marched in with the Roman legion, slaughtered 1,100,000 Jews, destroyed the temple. They burned the temple, and all the gold flowed down between the rocks, so they got rid of the rocks and got the gold. And it says it comes with a flood. I would describe that as a, metaphorically as a flood, wouldn't you? Where 1,100,000 people are slaughtered. And then Titus took 90,000 back to Rome to die as slaves, rebuilding whatever they were building, the Arch of Titus and the Colosseum and so on and so forth. And he says, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. In other words, God is sovereign over all these things. He says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for what? For one week, for seven years. What do we know that is the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, where he again will deal with the Jews. But in the middle of the week, he'll put an end to 
sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. In other words, at the Battle of Armageddon, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the armies in rebellion, raging against God, will be destroyed. You can place your bets on that. Well, that sounds cheery, doesn't it? So, you see, even the Old Testament teaches two comings. Yes, there is a future time when Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of God, will come in power and great glory, and he will end the reign of Satan and man at the Battle of Armageddon from then on and forevermore. But the first time he came in great humility as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the sin of all who will put their faith in him thereby purchasing from among men an inheritance and an eternal possession granted to him from the Father. That's an interesting thing. In John, let me just read John 6, verses 37 through 40. You jot that down. He says this. He says, all that the Father gives me, you realize you're a love gift from the Father to the Son? That's an awesome thought, isn't it? I'm a love gift from the Father to the Son. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I would imagine Christ's own will would have been to take it up in his reign, but the will of the Father was that he be a suffering Messiah, the first coming. He would die for the sins of the world. He would redeem men and forgive their sins. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In other words, sin and death no longer has dominion over us. It's a wonderful thought. Because sin and dominion and death have dominion over this world, don't they? Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'd encourage you to, to come to him, to embrace him as Lord and Savior of your life. It's the greatest offer in the world. You exchange your sin for his eternal life. Wonderful transaction. Beware of those who would teach otherwise. Christ came once to redeem the nations. He will come again to reign over the nations. So we've seen the raging of nations. We've seen the response of God to the nations as they rage. We've seen the reign of the sun over the nations that are raging. <laughs> then lastly, we'll look at God's recommendation to the nations. In verses 10 through 12, he says, he says, Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. First of all, notice who this recommendation is addressed to, to kings and to judges, to leaders of the people, to presidents, to legislators, to leaders of the people, because as go the leaders, so go the people normally, right? He tells them to show discernment. The Hebrew word can mean uh, to be circumspect, to show intelligence, <laughs> to have insight, to act prudently, to turn the mind to act in a successful and a prosperous way, to have wisdom, to be upright, to act piously. In other words, one author said success comes from applying some common sense. That would be good in our world today, wouldn't it? Just some good old common sense, but um, that's lacking in our world today. Now, tell me, does that seem to 
characterize our world today? Does it characterize our nation? Does it characterize your life? There are a lot of good scriptural, godly common sense that exudes from your life, or is it a mess? Because uh, we're to, it says, take warning. In other words, it's time to chastise, to admonish, to reprove, to instruct, to warn, to correct, to discipline, to rebuke if need be, our very own lives and the lives of our society if need be. And I think we're in that place, aren't we? We know what's right and wrong from God's Word, and we see our nation going off the rails. We see our world going off the rails. It's time to tell them where the, the truth is and the one who is the truth. And he says, uh, in verses 11 and 12, he says, Worship the Lord with reverence. Literally, serve the Lord with fear. Proverbs 9.10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And, you know, if you're raging against God, if you're, God's your enemy somehow, there's no fear of Him. It's disrespect. It's evil. Fear of Him begins when you realize who God is and the power that he has, and, you know, the final judgment, and so on and so forth. And then it says we're to uh, rejoice. He says to worship the Lord with reverence. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Very similar to what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 when he says to them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not yours, not ours, but his. In other words, rulers, in other words, judges, in other words, people, start living righteously by worshiping and serving God, not yourselves. That's kind of hard to stomach, isn't it? That's why people feel bound and fettered because God's in their life or God is out there and wants to be in their life and they don't want God to be telling them what to do. Nobody likes to be told what to do, right? Then he says this in verse 12. He says, Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. That's a fiery term. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We'll end with this. Do homage or literally kiss the sun. Bow down before him that he not become angry and you perish. And the Hebrew word here is used to speak of the downfall of nations, the withering of crops, the fading away of strength and hope and wisdom and knowledge and wealth. It speaks of utter defeat, utter destruction. That's the fate of all nations and all individuals that reject Christ, right? Destruction. So why do homage to the Son? Well, on a national level, that we might not perish as a nation. On a personal level, that we might not perish into an eternity of separation from God. John 3.16, again, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that you should not but perish, but, and here's the real kicker, have eternal life. There's a huge difference between perishing for eternity and having eternal life forever. You see, this is not a prophecy. This is not a warning to be taken lightly. The end of verse 12 says, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Read the book of Revelation sometime and be warned. Don't take the message of God's judgment lightly or just pass it off and walk out of here and go, eh, big deal. God's going to judge the world. No, it's a horrible thing. It's a terrible thing that finally grace and mercy will run out. The message of these last three verses is turn to God, come to the Son, worship them, reverence them, rejoice in them, do homage to the Son, or eternally perish. It's an either-or proposition. In other words, the message is turn or burn. His wrath may soon be kindled. It speaks of God's burning hatred for sin and rebelliousness of men towards God. Judgment is coming. 
And the big question is, are we ready? Am I ready personally? Is our nation ready? Is our world ready? Without Christ, no. This will become a reality someday. But there's an alternative. There is another road. The end of verse 12, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. In who? Well, in the Son of God, who came once to be our Savior. But if he is rejected, he comes as our judge. But he will come twice. Scripture is very clear about that. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I, I would just encourage this, you this morning, if this is the first time you've ever heard this, that maybe you would take refuge in him. You would consider the message of eternal life and eternal salvation and realizes that, as Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There's no other name under heaven by which it's, which it's appointed for man to be saved. So um, this morning you have the free offer of salvation, and I would just encourage you to take it. Can you imagine if somebody had a pill that would give you eternal life? You know how rich I'd be? But I'm offering to give this away for free. Christ is offering to give away eternal life for free. For free. I don't know why people reject such an offer. It's just incredible. But let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, your word. Thank you for how clear it is. It just... It just makes sense. It just makes spiritual and common sense. And Lord, that man is sinful, that, that you are a great Savior and that you would pay the penalty for our sin. And Lord, that you would turn around and conquer sin and death and you would turn around and offer us that eternal life as a free gift. What, a, what an incredible gift. What an, what an amazing gift to be offered eternal life and and Lord, why, why would we ever reject that? I just, I just don't know. It's beyond my reasoning now that I've actually received it. I don't understand why a man would reject the free gift of eternal life in Christ. So God, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. And Lord, do your will in each situation, in each person. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.